Hi, everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today, Nancy Yu, who is the co-founder and CEO of RDMD, which is a healthcare tech company dedicated to accelerating research for patients with rare diseases. RDMD is backed by Lux Capital and Village Global, whose network of backers includes Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jeff Bezos. Nancy has an equally incredible background. She previously led corporate development at 23andMe, the largest consumer genetics company. There, she worked on 23andMe's next-generation sequencing platform, drug discovery strategy, and business operations. Prior to that, she worked in biopharma banking and private equity at Jefferies and HIG Capital. Nancy is a proud alum of our home base at the University of Pennsylvania and is passionate about bridging the gap between patients and industry to make drug R&D cheaper, faster, and better. Hope you enjoy the episode. Nancy, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grow up? And how close is that to recovering biopharma banker, as you say on your Twitter page, or entrepreneur extraordinaire as you are today? <laughs> Growing up, I was very much into drawing and painting and making costumes and comics. So all throughout grade school and high school, my designs or watercolors or Halloween costumes were always chosen for some award. And so maybe I thought I'd be an artist. <laughs> But my parents are first-generation Chinese immigrants, and so that is not, that's just out of the question. <laughs> so pretty different from banking. But as a founder, I guess you're constantly imagining what the future could look like and describing that to others. So in a way, I can see that connection to art. Very cool. I will say that also as a child of immigrants, I was not encouraged to pursue super <laughs> creative careers, but exciting that you get to live out that creative energy today as an entrepreneur. But in all seriousness, I would love to walk through your journey from perhaps Penn to today as co-founder and CEO of RDMD. Specifically, what were some of the key milestones along the way that helped you realize your passion for bringing novel therapies to market? Yeah, I think it actually started in high school. So my favorite teacher was my AP biology teacher, and she was really passionate about what she did. And I remember reading these massive technology textbooks around biotech just filled with zany drawings of cells and organelles. And I never found reading it to be a bore. So biology to me was kind of like this art because it felt like somebody imagined what a cell could look like and then had to convince the world that it looked like that. So to me, that was fun. A big milestone was Penn. So I was in the first class of the Vagilos Life Sciences and Management Program, where you get a dual degree in biology and finance. And I spent most of my time in a lab for all those four years um, and thought I'd be a researcher, but realized that the intense focus on one single topic was just really not a fit. And I left as a healthcare investment banker on Wall Street um, because that really let me marry those two worlds pretty well. The last big milestone, I think, was finding that perfect role at 23andMe, um, leading BizOps strategy and special projects. It just was really the right place at the right time. And I worked with an amazing leadership team that gave me the courage to eventually strike out on my own. So with RDMD, I really realized that I also like spending time with people. <laughs> and so the idea of building, one, something for patients as people and consumers, and two, something that can fundamentally change how the system works in drug development, that got me really excited. 
And so when I met my co-founder, Anno, who's been in the consumer space his whole life, but was actually diagnosed with a rare disease called NF2 just five years ago, it really clicked for us to work on this really important mission together. And I think that's a really great segue into talking about the landscape of rare diseases overall and specifically how real world data can shake up that industry. Yeah. So I think traditionally the industry is used to running uh, a prospective randomized controlled trial, meaning you control what the protocol is and what you are collecting in advance. In real-world data and real-world evidence, you don't get to control that. You collect data that is already generated during routine clinical care that's already available. And so, of course, that has challenges, but also a lot of benefits. The challenges are you don't get to control perfectly what you want to collect, but you also get more, more access to a greater amount of information that greater reflects what patients are actually seeing in the real world. People will kind of blur their eyes and expect that real world evidence should tell the same story as our randomized controlled trials. And in these controlled trials, you only have the ability to test a few endpoints or markers that your drug works or doesn't work. But for rare diseases, most of them are so multi-systemic, affecting so many parts of the body that you can't just describe the disease with a few endpoints. So when we look at real-world evidence, we see the entire picture of the patient, including longitudinal quality of life and everything about them. So that information can be really powerful for drug development process um, itself, but also tracking the outcomes after a drug has been approved. So RDMD is often referred to as a flat iron for rare diseases. Walk us through the landscape of Flatiron for X, especially in this era following Roche's acquisition of Flatiron. And what are some of the larger incumbents like Big Pharma and startups such as yourself or Ation doing in this space? How are they tackling that problem? So I think Flatiron really led the industry to, to see that there is a lot of useful data that is hidden in these unstructured portions of our, the medical record. And they had the courage to just take that on and structure all that information and validate that. So I think that has paved the path for a lot of companies to take on a similar approach as well. But it's really challenging in terms of two areas. One, how do you actually get that information? In Flatiron's case, they had access to an electronic medical record system that they acquired. And then two, how do you set the rules and methodologies and standards around the therapeutic areas and research areas that you actually want to target. And in Flatiron's case, of course, cancer was their biggest focus. Um, so other companies in the space have either a really broad view on this. For example, you mentioned Ation. They work across conditions, uh, mostly in the claims space, I believe. And other companies have taken on other therapeutic areas outside of oncology. The challenge in rare diseases is that there's no rare disease electronic medical record. There's nothing that you can access or, or buy. So you actually have to build up that infrastructure yourself in a way. And for us, because these patients are scattered all across the country, uh, there's 7,000 rare diseases, and each of these patients are seeing seven different specialists, it would be pretty infeasible to go out and integrate with every single doctor in the country. Instead, we thought, what if we could actually empower patients themselves to sign up? Because a lot of these patients and families are incredibly motivated uh, to find the treatment and to contribute and participate in research. Just so our audience gets a quick sense for the prevalence and cost burden of rare diseases, I, I know you've 
mentioned that about one in 10 Americans has a rare disease. And unfortunately, less than 5% of these cases have an FDA-approved therapy available. Is that right? That's right. Actually, one of my first guest lecturers at Wharton was Dr. David Fagenbaum, um, who's known for his research into Castleman disease that is a rare disease that he himself suffered and nearly died from multiple times. And super inspiring story, but it made me think about how oftentimes in cases with rare diseases, the solution can be kind of hidden and nuanced in plain sight almost. You've said in the past that treatments for rare diseases aren't a science problem as much as they are a regulatory and efficiency problem. So how can researchers and the FDA design successful clinical trials when this information is trapped in hospitals or, as you mentioned, may not even exist? Yeah, that is the biggest issue in rare disease that separates it from the challenges in non-rare conditions. When you look at non-rare conditions, we understand generally, there's still a lot to learn, but we understand generally what that prognosis looks like, uh, what the characteristics are. And so in rare disease, we are all starting from scratch, not just the drug companies, often cases, even these specialists who are the experts in the world, and there's usually only a handful of them. The onus is on these drug companies to educate the entire stakeholder community, including the FDA, which has to review all of these this data and make a call on whether this drug is actually doing better than baseline. Uh, they have to educate more doctors because that's the only way that we can identify and diagnose more patients and give them access to the drugs. Um, they also have to educate payers because payers need to ultimately pay for access to the drugs. And if they've never seen what this journey could look like, they may not be willing to cover the expenses of, of these high drug costs. Shifting a little bit into your story around RDMD and the founding story, how you met your co-founder, Ano. How did a fateful hackathon lead to the tech platform that you have today with hundreds of patients, volunteering data, and multiple biopharma customers? Really crazy experience. Anno had sequenced his entire uh, tumor because NF2 causes these benign tumors in your central nervous system. So he lost hearing on his left side, removed one of the tumors, uh, sequenced it, and then opened up the access to that data for everyone to hack on, as, as one does. 300 people came out, Google sponsored it, and it was truly amazing because it was the first time that we had seen so many different stakeholders in the same room. There were life sciences companies, drug companies, patients, researchers who flew in from all over, super multidisciplinary team of engineers, designers, and bioinformatics folks who were just looking at the data. And a number of presentations came out of it, and we just saw that there was so much support from not only the patient community, but then also from the research and pharma community. And why not just continue these efforts of actually empowering patients and researchers and everyone in the stakeholder community? We started in November of 2017, uh, but it took us a while before we really thought about the business model and thought about and built out the product. So we were two people back in August of 2018. Um, you raise a good point about the evolution of your product and business model. Tell us the story about you know, what your initial inklings were, knowing what you know about the industry and how that has perhaps changed over time. We always look at our platform from two sides, uh, and that's both uh, the strength of the platform, but also a challenge because as, as a startup, you really need to focus, of course. So on the patient side, when we got started, th this is where we first started because we knew that patients held the key to access their medical information. And so 
they are the ones that we are ultimately doing this for as well. And so they're a really key group that we want to engage. We actually started off with a lot of different ideas, second opinions for doctors, um, because a lot of patients mentioned that they couldn't get access to great care or a doctor that knew about their condition. So we actually found some success with that. But then when we, when we kind of fell upon this idea of participating and contributing to research, that was really what resonated with the community because often these are pretty debilitating conditions. Uh, these families have not a lot of resources and finding a treatment is probably one of the most important things that's, that's top of mind. So that was the sort of evolution of the patient side. And on the, on the pharma side, I think that has been pretty steady from the get-go. We talked to a lot of different companies within pharma even before we wrote a single line of code. And it just seemed like they, they, just, they would just laugh whenever we asked them, how would you get this data? They just laugh and say, well, I guess we'd have to go to 20 different hospitals and contract with every single doctor and get the data ourselves which they just wouldn't do, um, or spend a lot of time and money in order to get that. So we thought, okay, if we could get, get access to this information and structure it into a useful way, we could actually make a big impact on a lot of these programs. Diving a little bit deeper into your current business model, what is the incentive for biopharma companies to participate at all? Biopharma companies need this information all throughout their drug program whether it's in the early stages of when they're designing their trial, they need information they call natural history to understand what this disease actually is. Again, to educate all of their different stakeholders, FDA, new doctors, other patient communities, and even their insurance companies. And further down along the drug program, they're looking to recruit patients um, based on certain inclusion and exclusion criteria from their medical records. And as they get even further, close to approval, their teams around their commercial teams actually need to understand what that patient journey looks like in order to tell that story to payers who will eventually pay for the, the access to the drug. So all along this drug program, which could take years, 5, 12 years, they need access to this information in order to tell that robust and concrete story. Typically, we see that pharma companies will work with contract research organizations or CROs to do that work on their behalf. And then they'll actually go and subcontract with sometimes 20 different software vendors that fill in all the gaps and pieces that they need. For example, a survey software, but they find someone separate to then go form the database solution. And so we wanted to build that end to end on one single platform. I think you raised a really interesting point around how going to individual doctors and digging for the data presents a really high barrier to entry to getting this data at all. But I'm wondering, how is your technology platform differentiated from what an EMR company might be able to natively offer through their own software, say through like a population health registry? One is being able to actually make that information useful and standardized. So the biggest challenge of a lot of these companies is cleaning that information and making it and telling a story. And this is very disease specific in some ways. So when you look at a record and it has all of these lines of coding, um, whether it's claims coding or C uh, CPT coding, it doesn't necessarily tell a great story until you apply some kind of algorithm on it or some kind of um, 
rule set. So for us, a lot of the work is around understanding the research question of our customers and our researchers, and then using our standardized module set to actually answer those questions. And those are developed uh, for rare diseases broadly, but also therapeutic area specific. On top of that, the EMR software companies may not have direct access to the patients themselves, um, being able to recontact them for future studies or frankly, ask them to fill in gaps in their own record. And that's a big challenge. One of the things that is a really big focus from FDA um, and researchers in rare disease is you need to have access and recontact and a relationship with these patients in order to ask them more information about their condition. Um, sometimes we're asking patients to upload certain information that may be missing. And so that's a really important relationship to have. That's a good segue into my next question about data. One big limitation of a lot of applications in healthcare today is that they don't have access to robust and vast enough data sets to actually provide actionable information or algorithms. And so I'm wondering, how does RDMD envision tackling this problem as you recruit more patient volunteers and more biopharma partners? Um, and how are you going to continue keeping this data, these data useful to continue incentivizing your biopharma partners to, to continue partnering with you? The size of the data set is almost uh, irrelevant in some ways because we're just at such a different scale. Some of our customers are looking for data sets on 10 patients, and they're really trying to tell the story to regulators, to the community, to the stakeholders about the disease and raise awareness and tell more about the characteristics. And that's the biggest difference in rare disease versus non-rare. For some of our communities, we have hundreds of patients, but the, the key issue is how can you make sense of all of the information and do you have the depth of data available to answer those research questions of interest? And in many cases in rare diseases, some of these pharma companies are submitting iPhone videos of their children to show that progression. And while the FDA certainly has uh, strict standards around evidence and what can be submitted, I think they're a little more understanding just because there is such a huge need and they know that none of these conditions will be will have impact if um, or, or treatments if they continue to set these really high standards around evidence. So shifting a little bit to the patient journey, how do you forge relationships with patients to get them to volunteer their medical data? We work directly with the patients. Uh, we spend a lot of time with the communities. Uh, for example, we always work with ambassadors who are really excited to support the mission and go out there in their communities and, and, and raise awareness. And we also work with patient advocacy groups and foundations who play a really important role in this space to continue raising awareness and setting the standards for how the community should uh, organize around around these topics. That's really a big aspect of this. And another piece is that we focus on telling stories about patients. We want to highlight some of the challenges and some of the amazing paths and journeys that these patients have gone on. But I think at the end of the day, it's about showing research impact. We recently presented a research poster at a conference and showing the impact of what the data is actually being used for, that is the ultimate reason why people are deciding to join the RDMD platform. That's awesome. I love how grassroots focused almost the team is because I think that by really partnering with the patient, it makes the platform all that much more valuable and robust because it's coming from the source directly. 
So I'm curious on this issue around finding the right patient. You know, access to treatments might be different for patients that have the knowledge to be looking for a platform like RDMD that are really active on, say, a Facebook group looking for support around their condition. So how do you ensure that your recruitment is representative, especially for underrepresented backgrounds? The way we tackle that is we work across different ways to reach patients, whether it's through content or social media or these Facebook groups and ambassadors, patient foundations, or even doctors. Doctors have play a really important role in diagnosing patients, treating them. They have often referred patients to our platform as well. We think of this as we know there is going to be bias in the data because it's rare disease, because these communities are much smaller than the million-person data sets in some of these non-rare conditions. However, when you look at how it's done traditionally and how, the, how analyses are done traditionally, companies are looking at a pretty small data set because they can only be limited to the hospitals that they have access to. So because we are opening access to patients who can find us online, we're often getting data from over hundreds of hospitals. And so we hope that that lowers any potential bias or any representation issues around finding and accessing the information. So you highlight that there are already a limited number of patients by the nature of targeting rare diseases. So how can you, as a company, be really transparent with already vulnerable and limited numbers of patients with rare diseases by setting realistic expectations with them on what the outcomes of participating with RDMD might be? That's a really good question and a big challenge because research is unpredictable. You can't, there is no perfect pathway or plan. And so the key is being transparent. So we tell patients from the get-go that we work with drug companies and that that is our mission to accelerate treatments, anything that can support a potential treatment opportunity. We tell them about what is involved. So having access to their medical information is the first important step. But then at steps along the way, for example, if we are presenting analysis or outcomes in a poster, we want to tell them about that progress that we've made. And so we tell them through the application that they've contributed to this research program. And we generally try to be communicative along the way. So we actually require our partners as well to be transparent about who they are, what they're doing, so that patients know exactly where their data is being contributed at any given time. I think it's great that you are so honest upfront with patients that are already in a vulnerable state and probably engenders a lot more buy-in and trust compared to otherwise. What are some of the traits you hope RDMD retains over the next one to two rounds of funding and what do you hope RDMD grows out of? Mm, a lot of things. I've seen very clear values form over the last year and a half as we've grown the team. And with every team member that joins, I think our values will change slightly as well, but hopefully not too much. Uh, I hope that we will always retain our intense mission-driven culture and that courage to steer into these hard problems. Everyone at the company, while highly pragmatic, almost has this inner resolve to ensure that our vision becomes reality. I also hope that we'll continue to care a lot about personal growth uh, and development and helping others in the team grow as well and being very transparent and authentic about that with each other. Myself and several members of our leadership team participate in a conscious leadership group where we learn about what 
our true feelings are about things as well as different areas around being curious and open to learning rather than wanting to be right about things. That's awesome and really inspiring. A lot of teams could benefit from really emphasizing inclusive leadership because when you're recognizing each other's blind spots, I think you can build a really cohesive and robust team that can then inspire all of your other team members to go do the hard work that you all are tasked with. Many of our audience members are hopeful entrepreneurs or employees number two through 10 at an early stage venture. And I'd love to pick your brain on lessons you've learned as you've embarked on that journey yourself. So first around your experience being a female founder, specifically, I mean, you held an amazing corporate leadership role at one of the best known companies in healthcare, and you left to start your own company. You know, I'm a woman myself, and I think historically women take on less career risk and Thinking back on your time leading and fundraising as a first-time female founder, what advice would you give to your younger self? I've really enjoyed being viewed as that underdog in some ways. And that's probably the one thing I wish I could have done more, which is spend more active brain cycles on this. Be more actively involved in some of the female startup and VC communities like AllRaise, I think, One, it could have helped me be even more aware to patterns I may not even recognize. And two, support other female founders who experience this more often as well. In terms of taking on risk, I think you really just need a supportive partner. (laughs) Um, My husband started his own company when we started dating and continues to support me every day. And I think that's really important to have that foundation. That's crazy that you both started your own companies within the same time frame. How do you how do you tackle managing your partnership in that situation? We actually traded off. So right when he his company was acquired by another company, I started RDMD. So it's perfect. Got it. Got it. <laughs> the second area I wanted to dive into was your experience finding a co-founder. On Ofaber. I know that after you left 23andMe, you actually started another venture with a former coworker that kind of sizzled out before you met and then clicked with Ano. So what should someone look for in a co-founder before beginning a business partnership? And then after you launch that, how do you make it work over time? Both people really have to be in love with the problem and the mission. It's just too hard otherwise. There's so many challenges that come up in my mind hourly <laughs> that uh, you really need to be in love with the problem that you're solving. I think that formed a really great foundation for us to build RDMD. Second, personal values. What kind of culture do you want to build? What is important to you? It's really important to lay that out up front. And even within the team and hiring, that's how you should set that playbook for who you want to build your company around. Uh, co-commitment is also really important to both commit to being self-aware, self-improving, to care about optimizing for more understanding, more communication and curiosity rather than defending your ego. And lastly, probably just roles more tactically. What are those unique strengths and complementary skills of the founders? And is there a clear distinction and responsibilities? Because there's just so much to do at an early stage company that if you can cleanly define what those roles are, um, you can really get started in a very quick way. So how did you have that hard conversation early on around roles and responsibilities, splitting that between you and Anno? We both were, are very different people. So from the beginning, that was not too, it was very immediately obvious who would work on what. Uh, but over time, you really need to continue that communication and continue to talk through 
what people are strong at and what they may not be as strong as. In the beginning, for example, Anno was the product guy. So he he would tinker and hack together things and we would present them to, to partners, we'd present them to patients. Uh, and I was really focused on what is what are the operations around this? What is the business model? And talking to partners. And so because we had a very natural two-sided platform and two-sided focuses, that worked out really well for us. The most, I think, personally gratifying and world-changing experience that I've had through, through starting this company is just how much I've learned about myself and how much I've personally grown through every single challenge. Every challenge is really this amazing opportunity for you to really level up not only your skill sets, but how you react to, to different problems. And that is probably the most important thing that you can learn and grow from at a startup. So last question for you, Nancy. I know that Rare Disease Day is coming up at the end of the month, February 29th, 2020. So what do you and RDMD have planned? Ooh, we have a lot planned for our patient community and ambassadors. So stay tuned. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Nancy. I've learned a lot through the conversation. I really enjoyed learning about your journey. Thank you for having me.